0: This podcast is brought to you by UpCase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at UpCase.com.
1: Giant robots smashing into other giant robots.
0: Hello and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein and I'm here today with the one and only Craig Andera. So I was wondering if you could maybe start by telling us roughly what like a day in your life as a cognitive person looks like.
2: Sure. Well, uh, it depends a lot on whether that day is uh, Monday through Thursday um, or Friday. I assume you're not asking about my weekends, although I'm happy to talk about those as well. Hmm. So Monday through Thursday, I am a consultant, which means that I work with our clients on building their systems, whatever it is they need to do. Obviously, the technologies that we use these days are uh, primarily things like Clojure and Datomic. I'm actually a little bit unusual as a consultant in that for most of the last two years, I've been at a single client. Um, and I say unusual as a consultant at Cognitech, uh, Although we do have projects that go, you know, substantial periods of time. That's um, that's fairly long historically for mm-hmm. us. Um, but I've recently come off that project. I just finished a gig. In fact, yesterday that was a four week uh, gig doing datomic work for one of our clients. That was that was super fun.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so you know, it it looks a lot. Uh, one of those Monday through Thursdays looks a lot like I think uh, most developers' days would. Although. I'm remote, which I think um, is unusual for some people. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, get up in the morning and work on whatever needs to be worked on, design, implementation, testing, et cetera, et cetera. Some of that is pairing. It depends. I find that's uh, something that we use uh, less than we used to but still do use as a tool. It's great for gigs like the one I just did where I was only going to be there for four weeks. I'm doing a bunch of work providing expertise in closure and Datomic that I don't want to – evaporate into thin air <laughs> when mm-hmm. I leave always the hard part was you're a consultant is you know you go away cuz right. you know you get the job done hopefully so we used pairing in that case to make sure that what I was doing was something that was well understood by the developers who are going to be uh, left to maintain it mm-hmm. which um, is such an awesome my, way to like transfer that kind of knowledge i totally agree and in fact i i personally prefer that when we pair that whichever of us is the one who is the one to whom we're trying to transfer knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. So in this case, the client, that they be the one that does the typing. I think mm-hmm. there's something about actually moving your fingers over the keyboard as opposed to watching someone else do it. Yeah. Um, particularly an expert, and I think I can say that without too much arrogance to say that I'm an expert in the technologies like Clojure and Dictomic. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that when I'm going, it's, you know, there's five years worth of stuff that I'm dropping and I can't remember to ask everything. And it's a lot to expect somebody to stop every single time they have a question because that's... Just hard for people to. I know at least it's hard for me to do. Mm-hmm. So I like to make up the other person type. I think that's a really effective way to to learn. Mm-hmm.
0: So pairing for sometimes when you're yep. transferring knowledge and whatnot. Yep. Uh, you, so you mentioned that Friday is a different day. It seems like Friday is a different day.
2: Yeah. So um, for us, we have twenty percent time. A long time ago, uh, when we were still relevance, um, we used to when they introduced the policy. This is before I started. Actually, I heard that they used to say, "Well, okay, just take twenty percent of your time." And um, there's a fair number of type A's in the company. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so saying take 20% of your time and fit it in somehow was basically saying now you work 20% more hours in a week, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that wasn't something that um, as a company we wanted to encourage, right? That's, that's a good way to burn people out, for instance. So um, we started just saying it's Fridays. And that has a couple of nice benefits. One is it becomes easier to do things together, right? You know, we, we don't always, but we do sometimes focus on certain things. So, for instance, when Pedestal, uh, which is a library that we released, uh, it's almost two years ago now, I think, um, around, uh, you know, developing web applications and specifically web services in Closure. When we released that, we all got together and, and, and hacked on it um, collectively uh, on Fridays mm-hmm. uh, for, for a while. And people still do that or they work on Closure tickets or whatever. Myself, my Friday is often taken up at least partly, with uh, the podcast. Um, I'm the host of a show called The Cognicast, which we had you on, which was awesome. I was super glad you agreed to do that. Yeah, totally. Um, thanks, by the way, for inviting me back on. I hope you didn't feel at all obligated to do that because we had you on as a guest. Oh, no, no. Okay, well, good. <laughs> uh, that's good because um, I, I love your show, and I, um, I listen to it when I can, and um, I really enjoy it. Well, so like it was just cool, cool to be asked on. Yeah. So, yeah, so, you know, um, I'll definitely do some work on the podcast. Less these days. I now have people helping me, which... I didn't for the first, I don't know, couple dozen episodes, and it's made a really huge difference. It's allowed me to get back to doing other stuff, open source. Mm -hmm. I was working on an interesting one today. I wonder if you would like to hear about it. Yeah, please. All right, so I'll I'll give you the slightly long version. So I'm kind of a keyboard junkie a little bit. Uh Um, You know, I've used, for people who have ever seen, the Kinesis, right? The crazy split keyboard. That's what I I, use. Yeah? You like it? Yeah, I do. Um, I do, too. because the And, in fact, that was the, sort of the genesis of this particular project that I'm working on today. Um, one of the cool things about the Kinesis, um, if people have ever seen one, is that uh, the modifier keys, you know, shift, control, alt, are in a cluster in the middle. And then the, the regular keys, if you will, are split into two wells, one for your left, one for your right hand. But as an Emacs person, I'm always hitting control, alt shift something or other, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of, let's say, modifier keys. And, and the fact that those are in your thumbs, it just struck me as how awesome that was. I didn't ultimately wind up liking the kinesis for me. I, I don't have problems with RSI. I just find typing to be a fascinating topic given that it's, in a sense, like this primary mechanism by which we exercise our craft, right? Like mm-hmm. Ultimately, it comes down to, to typing. And, and hopefully there's not an excessive focus on on the actual typing, since I think that's a danger in our craft. But nevertheless, there's something about this mechanical device, this keyboard, that's like how you interact with the computer, how you program is through this device. So I like them. I like keyboards. I think they're cool. And I really like that fact that, you know, um, a, a key sequence that I type a lot is Control-Alt-X. That's a, in a, when I'm programming in my closure setup that evaluates the current form. So I would, like, type in an expression and hit Control-Alt-X. And if you think about how you type that on a normal keyboard... Um, it's a little awkward, right? You kind of have to bend down a thumb and a maybe a ring finger and then reach over with one of these others. It's it's a little bit weird, whereas on the Kinesis, it's basically left thumb, right thumb, and then you know uh, left ring finger to hit X, mm-hmm. and uh, that was just awesome. So when I gave up the Kinesis because I just didn't like it as much as a regular keyboard, I'm like, I want. I still want that because if you think of a regular keyboard, your thumbs are super underemployed, right? right? Like every other finger is assigned to, I don't know, like six different keys, right? Mm-hmm. And your thumbs both are about spacebar,
1: Right, exactly.
2: <laughs> and it's such
0: a strong finger too to like waste on not using it.
2: That's right. That's right. And so I, I don't know. I don't really remember what gave me the idea. I think maybe it was thinking about like stenography. You know, mm-hmm. and I and I can't claim that the the idea is completely novel. Although I have to say, I've never seen anybody do exactly what I wound up doing, which was to say, look, if you think about the ideal location for those modifier keys, you know, Shift, Control, Alt, specifically, it's the home row. That that's where you want everything to kind of go down is the home row.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and if I could design a keyboard where I could pick up the modifier keys and smack them somewhere, I would put them right where you know, like SDF, JKL are right. Mm. Um, and in fact, if uh, I know you're a, a Vim user, I mean, Vim gets that supremely right, because how do you navigate in in Vim is is with the, with the right-hand home row keys, Right. which is no accident, right? It's no accident at all. Right. And so I, I thought about it for a minute. I said, well, you actually probably could overload the home row keys to mean control, shift, and alt, mm-hmm. right? But it requires a little bit of, of tricky processing. so. The, the goal here, and, and this actually works, I've gotten this to work, um, is that if I hold down, say, J, and then press, um, say, X, that's interpreted as shift X. Hmm. And it still works because if I press and release J, that's interpreted as just J. Mm-hmm. And so I can still, I don't give up any of the, the key's normal meanings.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: What I <laughs> What I found out was, so I had this mental model where, like the way somebody would type in the word fun, for instance, would be to press F and then release F, and mm-hmm. then to press U and then release U, and then to press N and then to release N. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that a normal person typing is more like press F, press U, release F, press N, release U, release N. So there's all this what's called rollover. And in fact, you know, had I bothered to do more research, I would have discovered that uh, gaming keyboards boast a feature called nkro n key rollover mm. um you know if you're playing a game you know like a twitch game you may actually want to hold down more than one key at a time and right. to have the system recognize that um, and cheap keyboards you know the ten dollar kind typically because they're set up with a matrix of switches so mm. it's looking like at a row and a column mm. can detect there are situations in which it can only detect up to suit two simultaneous key presses mm-hmm. and it's really weird like i found out the hard way that you might discover that you know it can detect that you know R, Q, and comma are down. It's so like in that situation it can detect three, but if you press you know F and B, that's it. You can't press anything else. It's kind of random what you get. Yeah. Um, and so you know, not having accounted for rollover, which is obviously very much a thing, I, I got my program written and you know like all the tests were passing. So like this state machine that I had written was working. And then I turned it on and I went. I fired up a buffer and I went to type something in. And it came out like line noise. And hmm. it was just like garbage because it was interpreting almost everything I typed <laughs> mm-hmm. as like a modifier key. So, you know, it was like control Q, shift J, all this stuff. And it was like, oh, man. Um, so it took me a while to figure that out. And, and ultimately what it wound up being was uh, you have to kind of wait to decide. Right. So if you're typing F-U-N, if F goes down and then U goes down, well, you don't know what's happening. Somebody might be trying to type fun or they might be trying to type, in my setup, that would be shift U. So if the next thing that happens is that F goes up, it's rollover. Hmm. And if the next thing that happens that U goes up, it's a, what I call aliasing, right? You're trying to interpret F as a, as a modifier key rather than as a, a regular key press. Uh-huh. And there are some other things that I had to do uh, around uh, timing. It, I was hoping to avoid that and to take you know, kind of a functional approach where you just look at the events and you know, independent of timing, the history of the events is what determines the output that you should get. Mm-hmm. That works mostly. Uh, there, It does turn out that there are some situations where it's impossible to tell between, you know, at least when I type, impossible to tell the difference between rollover and an attempt to um, to alias keys. So I threw some timing in and that cleans up, you know, 99% of the uh, of the problems. And the cool thing is, if I handed you my keyboard, you would just type on it and you would, unless you were watching very, very closely and you could see that, minute delay where you press a key and i can't actually decide right away whether i should forward that event on Mm -hmm. um you wouldn't be able to tell because it still works the same for for normal typing but i can you know control Alt x for me now is you know hold down l hold down k press and release x and that works great so kind of home row modifiers very
0: cool yeah. Nice. So this is your—that's one of your twenty percent time efforts.
2: Yeah, that's right. So I mean, for me, it was um, simultaneously a, an obsessive, compulsive um, <laughs> effort to explore the boundaries of you know weird keyboard layouts, and also uh, an experiment in how you would structure something like enclosures. I project that I had quite a while ago, um, so I get to try out some ideas and. It was very much in the spirit of the type of thing that, that we do on Fridays.
0: Yeah, is there code that you've released for this?
2: Yes, absolutely. All this is on GitHub. Um, it's on my GitHub account. Uh, the name of the thing is Quarter, uh which has the amusing and horrible spelling of K H O R D R. Okay. <laughs> right. And the idea is cording, like you press yeah, chords yeah. Yeah, on right. a on a piano, or the same same idea. Mm-hmm. So it's there. Um, you know, you do have to install a device driver because that's how uh, you are able. To, I am able to intercept all the key presses and suppress some of them and um synthesize others mm-hmm. um, and it only works on windows right now if anybody out there knows how to get it working on uh osx and specifically the thing i would need would be that same type of device driver which is a filter that sits between the actual keyboard events and then goes through my software and then goes back in as keyboard events mm-hmm. that'd be great i spent a long time looking at how to do that including pouring through the source code of osx and was not able to to ultimately to figure it out i i, I gave up basically um, yeah.
0: So so you use a Windows machine as your development environment? I do,
2: yeah. I'm weird like that. (laughs) You came to Clojure through C Sharp, right? I did. I was uh, an independent consultant for a long time, 12 years. Did a lot of C Sharp. I started doing it in about 2000. Did it until I started at uh, Relevance at the time in uh, 2010. Worked at Microsoft for a while uh, as a consultant, not as an employee. So yeah, I, I spent a lot of time in that world.
0: What do you think when you look back over? You've been uh, working at Cognitech now for five years. Like, what do you yeah, think? almost five years. Yeah. What do you think when you look back on it? your time as a closure slinging consultant person?
2: I still love it. Yeah. I really do. I mean, uh, I'm a huge fan of the language. I was, you know, working with this client, and they're not a closure shop. They have uh, primarily a Python application, so they've written this web service enclosure that allows them to work easily, in this case, with Datomic, to project something out. Via transit, which by the way is super cool. Um, mm-hmm. We can talk about that too sometime if you want. But um, and I was just expressing to them because they, you know, they're gonna have to maintain it, and so you know they're learning more closure as well, so that they can maintain this thing. And I was just talking to them. And I'm like, I'm not trying to sell you anything here, but I just have to say, I really like closure. Like I really enjoy working in it. You know, there's just something about I've got this bag of information, and I I need to you know turn it into a different shape and and work with it. That just it's so to me, feels so fluid and comfortable and, and, and fun, even still after five years, that I just really like it. Mm-hmm.
0: I've written some Clojure, and I've been writing some Haskell, and I just really have gotten very into expressing problems in a functional style as just being such a really nice way to think about the world. Mm-hmm. Like when I, it's, I, I just find myself breaking down a lot of problems into like pipelines, basically. It's like you know we start with this kind of data over here and i need to go through a series of steps and each step takes it one step closer to what's it's going to look like at the end there mm-hmm. and then i find myself like writing O code i'm like okay like what what are my different objects and what behavior should go where and what data should go with that behavior in which place uh, and i just feel like there's so many more decisions i need to make and that i tend to get wrong like i'm, I'm often shuffling code around between objects for example
2: yeah well i think that's because um you know, as, as Rich has uh, mentioned on more than one occasion, is that we don't really need, an um, in most cases, an API for information other than the one that we already have. I mean, Map, Filter, and Reduce, and Friends are an awesome API, uh, you know, plus functions, I guess. I that's implied, but are an awesome API for information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and if you think about um, applying OO concepts to information, you know, sets and maps and, and things like that. It's really like saying, well, we're going to put our information in a box, and then we're going to, you know, custom design an API to access that information. Right. When there's already really a pretty good API that exists. In some ways, it's, it's almost like um, how people feel about REST, right, this idea that we'll have resources, and then there's this uniform API for access. And that's a really, really weak analogy, I, I admit. But but the same idea that let's, you know, pare down our, our set of verbs and allow them to work on all sorts of nouns, I think, is a really powerful one.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I've been a bit of fan. So one thing we haven't really established is sort of what's, and I, sometimes I struggle to explain this myself a little bit, like the, the relationship between
2: detect and closure and and all that. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's a good question. So, first of all, I don't speak for the company. I'm not the official spokesperson of the company. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I'll do is I'll explain my understanding. And if anybody wants the real story, they should reach out because we're always happy to talk to people. But um, here's what I believe to be true. So, Closure is, if you want to talk about straight IP, that's copyright rich. Rich Mm -hmm. Hickey, right? That's his thing. Now, we are definitely in the business of helping people succeed with it. And we spend a lot of resources on... uh, maintaining closure right it is an open source effort and uh you know other people contribute as well um but as a company we devote people's time for instance alex miller you know a big part of his job is actually like managing the ticket process and writing patches and writing tests and everything and that's you know that's time that we Cognitech devote to it and there's other stuff as well i mean obviously you know rich is is one of the founders of Cognitech, um and clearly his time is all company time because you know he's one of the owners and he's putting time into it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we, we, we do it that way, but it's not strictly speaking a Cognitech property, right? right. Um, now that other, th- there are things that are that are in our universe, right? Like, uh, uh, pedestal and, um, obviously Datomic, right? That's a database that we make and sell to people for money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's very much a Cognitech thing and, and, and full on. So, but you know, Rich wrote closure way before there was a, a Cognitech and that remains his, um, his property.
0: Yeah. Uh, briefly, what is Atomic?
2: So, right, The Atomic is a database. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, in my opinion, a really interesting one. Um, obviously, I work for the company that makes it, so I'm vendor scum. So everybody can kind of take that into account. But, mm-hmm. but no, I really like it. It's it's a database that has a data model that is not a rectangular one. So it's it, there's not you know tables with rows and columns. Instead, we view everything as a five tuple. So every piece of information that the database tracks is a five tuple. And the five elements of those tuples are an entity. So that's, you know, a number that stands for whatever you're talking about. So if we had a database of users, there would be a, you know, entity 53 would be Ben, and entity 59 would be Craig, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then those, uh, another element of that tuple is the attribute. So these are different things that we want to be able to say about entities. So we might have a first name attribute. We might have a last name attribute, social security, et cetera, et cetera. Then there's a value. So that's the attribute is first name and the value would be Ben, right? Mm-hmm. So we, now we know entity 53 or whatever I said, first name Ben. And then the last two are work. It's a little bit different because that those first three, if you're at all familiar with semantic web stuff, that's basically subject predicate object. That's, that's from the semantic web. If anybody's familiar with that, that's the same thing. But where Datomic starts to differ is that the last two elements. You, so you have time right uh it's it's really transaction right mm-hmm. This this element which is when did this get fact get put into the database mm-hmm. right so 53 first name ben you know whatever it is 127 pm mm-hmm. on you know friday F- uh March, whatever or the mm-hmm. date right and that actually all by itself is pretty interesting right Because what it means is that if you have a database, which is basically the accumulation of all of those things Mm -hmm. over time, you can do all sorts of crazy stuff. Like you can go and look at the database at any point in time, first of all, Mm -hmm. right? Auditing kind of falls out for free because you can kind of see here's how we got here.
0: Right. So if if I change my first name, you just record a new fact. Yes. You don't say like you you don't go update the Ben first name column in the table. You just say oh, actually, as of 128, Ben wants to be called something else.
2: Right, exactly. We don't forget that Ben used to go by Benjamin, right? Mm-hmm. We just re- remember that it changed at some point. And, and now we have a way of talking, which, which if you think about it, like if you tell me, hey, man, I can't eat cheese anymore. You know, I just turned 40 and, uh, you know, it's something I can't do anymore. I don't forget the fact that you ever loved pizza, right? That's not something that's not the way the brain works. Right. And if you think about the way we keep records historically with paper and pen, you know, if you apply for a marriage license and you decide to change your name as part of getting married, it, they don't go through all of the other records that had your name on it, like your birth certificate, and either erase what was on there or burn it, right? That just doesn't, that's not how it works. Right. And, and, and obviously, you can do this in other databases. I mean, people do it all the time. In fact, I know that like us, uh, you know, your company has a strong relationship with, uh, with Rails. I mean, you've got, you know, the, create, the, the this database schema that you get with Rails includes things like created at and updated at, right? Mm-hmm. That's not bad. I mean, it's, it's, be- it's certainly way better than nothing. Mm-hmm. But obviously, that's a subset of keeping everything, right? right? Um, and the observation, of course, is that for most data sets uh, and the cost of storage being what it is today, right, th- it's just not, it's not a big deal to do that.
0: Right. So this is basically taking this whole idea of like immutable facts and shoving it all the way down to the database level.
2: Absolutely true. And in fact, if you look at the way uh, data, Datomic arranges the data um, in the persistent storage, it's actually extremely analogous to the persistent data structures that Clojure uses mm-hmm. um, in the sense that it's a tree, right? All of Clojure's persistent data structures are organized in memory as trees. Datomic's indexes are organized as trees. And they're persistent, meaning that we don't get rid of the old ones they stay the way they are forever, and the way you make a new one is to make a new route and share as much as you possibly can with the existing nodes.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah, it's it's so interesting. And so, so when you have a database that has this notion of like facts have times to them, you, you mentioned this, you touched on this. Like you can say, "Hey, database, pretend it's five weeks ago." Yeah. And so the thing that kind of blows my mind a little bit is like if if I wanted to say like let's let's calculate all the orders we had um, for a certain month that was three months ago. Uh, in normal database land, I would like write a query that says, okay, give me all the orders that happened within this time frame, and then sum them up. Whereas, it seems like with Atomic, I can say, hey, Atomic, pretend it's three months ago, and tell me how many orders we got this month. Is that accurate?
2: Uh, I would say not entirely. Okay. Um, I, th- I think you're doing what a lot of people that are new to Datomic do, which is you're, um, you're mixing up two notions of time. Okay. Okay, because... It's important to point out that um, Datomic's notion of time is really powerful and it gives you things that are very important, but it's also not every notion of time that you might want to deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, The example you gave might or might not be the one that Datomic gives you, but let me me just be clear that, let's take the example of like a publishing system, okay? So if you think about a publishing system, Mm -hmm. um, you have articles and articles might be in the system before they're published. Mm-hmm. And so you have dates that are in the future. This article will be published on October 31st, right? Mm-hmm. Datomic's notion of time has nothing to do with that domain notion of time. Datomic's notion of time is, I write down that you told me, you know, article 53, publication date, October 31st. I learned that on March 2nd. Mm. The, the the time is exactly the moment where that information was added to the database. Okay, and And that's all it is. Let me point out um, a problem that Datomic does solve with that notion of time, mm-hmm. and that one that almost everybody has, even though they probably don't even realize they have it, okay, which is um, pagination, right? So a lot of us have written applications where you do a query and you show the first 20 results on the web page, mm-hmm. and then you want to come back and show the next 20 results, mm-hmm. Okay. Well, in a database that doesn't have a notion of time or where you have not implemented one, right, because you can, Mm -hmm. how do you keep those results stable so that if somebody adds something to the result set, that when you say, show me the next 20, you're getting the 20 after the one that the user looked at? Right. There are approaches you can take, obviously. If there's a natural sort order to that data, then you can make sure that you always sort. But even then, it's like, well, what if something comes in? So what we do in Datomic is when we returned, if I wrote a system, I would say, here are the first 20 results. I got that from a database that was at time 75, Mm -hmm. right? And then when you come back, you can say, please show me results, you know, 21 through 40. Do it against the database at time 75. So in other words, because the database is a value, right, and Mm -hmm. we can do that because we can just say, you know, don't look at anything after T75, Mm-hmm. Then I can get completely stable uh, results to my queries, which is which I think is quite important if you care about that sort of thing. And, and right. you know, I, I think I've definitely written systems where I have.
0: Mm-hmm. That's cool. So, I think we were, we were at four out of five of the things yep. in the tuple.
2: Yeah. So, the last one is about whether what we're saying is an addition or a retraction. So, if I were, if, you know, we talked about changing your name, like you, you signed up for the service and you put your first name in as Benjamin and we wrote that down. And then later you're like, you know what? I, I go by Ben. I don't even know if your full name is Benjamin. Maybe, it is. Maybe it is. Okay, great. So, I go by Ben. I'd really like that to be it. And you go in, and, you, and you want to change your name. Well, the way that works is actually, let's start with the simpler case. Let's say that you put your middle name in, mm-hmm. and you want the system to no longer n- know what your middle name is. Okay, right? Like you want to you want to get rid of data.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, so the way it works is that f- that fifth element of the tuple mm-hmm. is a boolean, and it's basically whether what we're saying is something that we want to be true or something that we no longer want to be true. So mm-hmm. I, you know, if you put in um, you know, 53, that's you, entity that represents you, Mm -hmm. middle name, and then, I don't know, Charles. I'm not going to ask. Maybe you're embarrassed by it, whatever. Um, You know, middle name, Charles, and, you know, that was at time 75, and an add. Then later, we would put in 53, middle name, um, Charles, retract. And, of course, there'd be a time that would be assigned by Datomic. When you put data into Datomic, you don't say what the T part is. You're only saying you know, entity attribute value and add or retract. And then it, it assigns a T, all of the facts. And we call them datums, right? That's the, hence the name, right? Mm-hmm. These these tuples are called datums. All of the datums in a single transaction get the same T value. So you can you can look at the database as well and see what a particular transaction consisted of just by looking at the data and go, oh, these all have the same T. These, this was one transaction.
0: That sounds really handy.
2: It is. And it points out too that Datomic, importantly, because um, a lot, this isn't necessarily true of, non-rectangular databases in general. Datomic mm-hmm. provides ACID semantics, right? It is a, a transactional database.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So anyway, you could say retract. And now when somebody walks up to the database, they say, what is entity 53's middle name? Datomic will say, there isn't one, okay?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You can go back in history. So you could be able to say, well, what was entity 53's middle name yesterday? And Datomic would be able to answer the question, well, it was Charles, right? But if you if you want the current view, which is... Kind of the default view you get. When you work with Datomic, most of the time you don't actually care about the entire history. You want to know what the current information is, what, you know, what's Ben's name right now. Mm-hmm. Then you, know, you, you, you get that. But you do have the ability to go back. And so to come back around to the example I started to give and then uh, corrected to the simpler version, um, when you make a change, so if you go from Benjamin to Ben, mm-hmm. you're actually asserting two facts. You're asserting a retraction of the original and then an assertion of the new value. That's mm-hmm. they, and atomic does that for you. You don't have to know what the old value was and retract that. You can just say here's the new value. And it, but when you look in history, you'll see that 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 transaction included a retraction of the old value and an assertion of the new value.
0: Cool. So Conectech now is basically not even basically is a software company and a consultancy simultaneously.
2: Yep, absolutely true.
0: How does that uh, is there tension there? Is there has it no. been no no.
2: No, it's actually worked out really well. I think. Um, I mean, it, it's pretty typical, actually, for um, sort of for software product companies to have a consultancy because yeah. we do our best to document uh, Datomic, and it is simple, right? In the sense that uh, Rich uses that word. If right. people have seen his talks about that, mm-hmm. um, really r- highly recommended. Um, if not, but but of course, you know, any non-trivial technology takes mental bandwidth to learn and absorb, mm-hmm. and so. I think it's really been useful for some, but by, by no means all, of our clients to be able to say, you know, this is a new technology for us. We want to work with people who know it really well. I mean, it's the same for any, you know, a lot of things. Like people make something and they give you consulting because that's a useful thing to exist in the world for making best use of a technology.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you uh, hack on Atomic itself?
2: Um, I have, um, in times where I've been not otherwise engaged in consulting, been seconded to the product team to help them out with stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not, and I think this is a, absolutely the right decision, it's not like on Friday you go and say, hey, I've got three hours today. Can I work on this product that you guys have been, um, I say guys, I shouldn't say guys, that you developers have been um, I, because specifically because, you know, we have Yoko Harada is on the, the Atomic team. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make any sense. It's really, really hard actually to make use of people on significant efforts where you've got a lot of things in flight over long periods of time to make use of them like three hours at a time once a week. Oh, totally. Yeah. And it's not like we don't have 10,000 other things that we could have people work on if they're looking for something to do. So Yeah.
0: So, and so mostly consulting, occasionally working on some software stuff, and then podcasting as well.
2: Right. So, you know, we have our show. It's, it's called uh, the CogniCast. I suspect that there is a fair amount of overlap in our audiences because I know when I talk to our listeners, they uh, often mention your show as another one that they really like. Oh, cool. Which I take as total flattery because I, I dig your show. Likewise. Uh, oh, thanks. Um, so, yeah, you know, um, we do tend to uh, talk a lot about uh, Closure and Datomic. Obviously, that's where I spend a lot of my time. And as the host, I have some influence. But it's not exclusive. I think, um, like we were talking when you were on our show, you know, it kind of follows our interests. So, if I hear about something cool that someone did, um, and it doesn't have anything to do with the technologies that that we typically work with, hey, come on the show. I mean, I've, I've mentioned before that some of my favorite shows were where we talked to uh, Joey Halloway about um, her struggle with uh, serious depression and uh, electroconvulsive therapy. Um, the one where we talked to. Um, uh, Lynn Grogan, who's one of the organizers of Closure Conj and um, helps uh, out with Strange Loop and Closure West. Um, and, by the way, can I plug something? Yeah, please. Cognitech just announced that we now um, will be running Euroclosure,
1: hmm.
2: uh, which we're pretty excited about. We worked with uh, Marco Abis, who is uh, Abis, I believe is the correct pronunciation. He was actually a guest on our show as well. He was looking for someone to run Euroclosure, which I haven't been to, but I hear is great. And so we said we'd be happy to help, and we just were able to announce that. So we're pretty psyched about that. Cool. Um. anyway we talked to lynn about her hiking the john muir trail which was super cool yeah so you know i don't know we we talk about mostly tech but not always that's
0: on my to-do list by the way the john muir trail
2: that would be cool i, I watched, mean done a
0: really amazing documentary about it yeah yeah it was uh, like a like a couple film people and a sound person and a couple photographers just like sort of documenting their trip through it taking a lot of video and pictures and things like that it just looked absolutely amazing
2: yeah, it sounds really awesome. I mean, 212 miles, I think it is, is a long way. And she said, <laughs> like, the cruel part is the end of the trail is effectively the middle of nowhere. Mm. So you get done, and then you have to turn around and hike. I forget what it was, you know, five or six more miles before you can have the cheeseburger you've been dreaming about for the last, you know, week or two weeks, however long it takes you. Interesting. So you also, you're a musician, right? Uh, That... <laughs> it might be too bold a claim on my part. Okay. I would say I play a few instruments to varying degrees of incompetence. Uh-huh. Um, but I've never been professional. I didn't start playing anything even remotely seriously until I was 25. And even then, it's it's like half an hour a day in spurts various of, of a few months for various times throughout the year. So, I, you know, I play the bass, which is probably my best instrument. And I'm definitely – no one's going to be hiring me to play on their album anytime soon. hmm um, I picked up the cello because I've always loved that, hmm. but I'm like Suzuki book one. I mean, definite beginner there. It's a very challenging instrument. Yeah. Um, a little bit the guitar. I dabble with the drums. but
0: Those bow instruments seem to be really tricky.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if you think about the mechanics involved, um, so if I play on my bass, I'm not trying to minimize the fact that there is a lot of uh, technique that can be brought into it, in nor state that I have any of it. But ultimately, you know, I press down on a string with one hand, and I flick my finger across the string at the other hand. Mm-hmm. So that's not crazy complicated. Again, there's technique and everything, but not too many joints involved. When I move a bow across the string, I have to coordinate the motion of uh, my fingers, my wrist, my elbow, and my shoulder, mm. right, to keep the bow moving in a line because that's, you know, that's like a known hard problem in robotics. Right, <laughs> Get, yeah. Getting like a six, you know, what is that, 12 degrees of freedom or something like that in right. that in And that maintaining equation.
0: a constant pressure Yeah, and that's speed. right.
2: Yep. Yeah. An yep. angle. Yep. <laughs> and then, don't
0: you also sort of like use vibrato with your fretting hand? As I you're never playing?
2: got to vibrato. Like I said, I'm still pretty well in in book one. Yeah. But the, yes, vibrato is absolutely a take. Oh, and by the way, it's it's fretless.
0: Right. Exactly. Yep. So you so, kind of have to just know where to go.
2: Yep. Which was great, actually. That was one of my big goals for learning the cello: was to play an instrument where I had to develop my pitch hearing. Because with a fretted instrument, if you're somewhere nearby and the instrument is tuned, you're going to get the right note right and, and so I found that I actually would have a hard time telling if I wasn't looking at my hand if I was off by a fret I would be you know you know I would look up and go oh that's wrong and I felt like I should be able to hear that Yep. and so playing the cello even as little as I did it definitely helped me I can't claim I'm good I certainly don't have a perfect pitch but um it helped
0: that's great I mean it's nice to have the sort of mental capacity to be willing to be bad at something to recognize like i I could improve in this area let me do it by being really intentionally like picking up a thing that i'm really bad at to improve that skill
2: it's it's funny that you say that because um first of all i think that is what i do but i have a weird relationship with being bad at things Hmm. i really don't like to be bad at things overall um and so like i don't mind playing the cello but i really get nervous playing it in front of other people i try to do it anyway but Mm-hmm. You know, I just don't like to be bad at things. Mm-hmm. The one exception to that is um, software. Hmm. Like, it doesn't bother me at all to write code where I make a dumb mistake um, in front of lots of people. It just, it, I just, I don't know why. I don't know. I'm not sure what it is hmm. about that activity. Because, I mean, I spend more time on it than anything else, right? It's been my job and yeah. my my hobby both for 30-something years now. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know. It's just, I find it strange that I have that. That's
0: interesting. Know. Like I think be it, that willingness is so important to mastery. And so like you pretty comfortably called yourself expert at closure and have that total willingness to look like you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> but you know, don't want to play the cello in front of people yeah. and be presumed uh, uh new at that. And it's the relative skill levels I think are probably result not quite directly, but close to that.
2: Yeah, I think you might be right. I I um I can't say for sure just because I don't think I understand myself well enough to be willing to go. That's definitely it. But
0: yeah, but well, we, can, no, we can keep going. We'll, I'll dive deep in this. we we'll do a little therapy session right
2: here. I, I'm up for it, man. You know, we had a great conversation when <laughs> you, you did, were on yeah. our show. I really enjoyed it. So whatever you want to talk about but, is cool by me. Um, well, so just very related to this idea.
0: There's sort of this uh, meme that gets repeated a lot, which is that children are really amazing at learning languages. Uh, and what I've been reading recently is that when people look at this phenomenon, uh, it's actually not true. Like, children do not pick up languages faster than adults who are trying to learn a language. Uh, And there are some theories as to why it seems like that that's true. And I think a big part of it is that children are not worried about seeming incompetent at something. Like kids will pick up a new activity and have no concern with being bad at it, and they'll just keep trying it and not be worried about it. Adults, if you ask them, like, do you speak Spanish?" It's like, "Oh yeah, well, my Spanish is awful. You don't want to hear me speak Spanish." Like, and there's like this is like immediate apology that starts coming out, <laughs> right? And I think that's I think that's
2: part of it. It's like this this willingness to to not be good at it. It's funny you say that because I think that it's true mostly. But I, I ha- so I know the plural of anecdote is not data, yeah, right? Totally. But I have some anecdotes. Okay because I have bilingual children. My wife is from Taiwan. She's fluent in Chinese. It's her first language. Yeah. Um, And my mother grew up the daughter of two Italian immigrants who never spoke Italian in the house. Um, It was their secret language. Rather, they spoke in the house and they never taught the children. Mm -hmm. So they would use it when they wanted to talk about the kids. And my mother never learned it. And I remember her saying, I always regretted that we didn't learn Italian. And so, you know, when we had kids and we were, you know, trying to figure out what to do about language, you know, we agreed that we were going to make sure that the kids learn Chinese and I am a huge proponent of just do it right like just go and do it and so they are now and have always been permitted only to speak in Chinese with their mother and with each other hmm. okay now that latter one when they're talking to each other there is a lot of what uh we call chinglish right mm-hmm. where they'll be like blah 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 strawberry blah 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 mm-hmm. and you know, they constantly use words in English that they know in Chinese. I mean, they, they use words in English that I know in Chinese. They'll be like going along and they'll drop some word. I'll be like, come on, guys, even I know the word for that. Right. And my Chinese, as you were alluding to earlier, I will give the disclaimer is awful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's worse than my I know it's objectively it's worse than my high school French. OK, <laughs> okay. Uh, I can't follow an adult conversation, or I can generally tell what the ki- what my wife and the kids are talking about. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they're not awesome picking it up, particularly the written stuff. Because um, I did take Chinese um, for a semester uh, at a college before we got married. I was, is, you know, make an effort. Oh, I'll learn my wife's language and everything. It wound up being hard to fit into the schedule, so I didn't continue it. But, but I definitely made a lot of progress. And uh, I would say my rate of learning was higher than my kids right now, even though they're taking Chinese school. Mm-hmm. As far as the embarrassment of being bad at things, I think it really depends on the person and the kid, mm. like one of my daughters, yeah, she doesn't care really that much, and the other one does not like to do something wrong in front of other, other people mm-hmm. um, and she resists a lot more, even things like chinese where they they speak fluently i mean their learning primarily is about reading and writing at this point, but you know we we've taken them to Taiwan and put them into summer camps where there's nobody else can speak English, and they do do fine, so they're they're fluent. Mm-hmm. But I think it's hard to categorically state one way or the other. I mean, honestly, the older my kids get, the more I have exposure to them, the more I realize that there's really not a lot of difference between adults and children. There's a lot less than we would like to think. Hmm. You know, I think as an adult, I'm way more childish than I would like to think. And, and my children are capable of more maturity than I probably give them credit for a lot of the time. Hmm. Interesting. So, what that's
0: worth. Okay. Uh,
2: all right. Anything else we should cover? Anything else you're you're fired
0: up about or passionate about?
2: Oh, well, you know, um, I've got two other hobbies. We don't have to talk about either one of them because I think it would uh, easily go into, oh, God, that's boring for anybody that doesn't do it. But my two other hobbies right now are um, woodworking, mm-hmm. um, which, by the way, I want to plug my friend Timmy Wald's talk. He gave a talk at the uh, Closure Conj from 2013. That's a great talk. I've seen it. I'm glad you like it because I think it the best talk I've ever seen him give, and that is intentionally high praise because I've known Tim forever. I've seen him talk a lot, and he's an excellent speaker on a bad day. And this was just killer talk. In fact, it's what got me into. So, the talk is titled uh, Programming with Hand Tools, and he draws a strong analogy between um, woodworking with non powered tools and writing software the way that he likes to. Really great talk. It actually, you know, he and I had been talking about woodworking for a long time. I had done woodworking, primarily power tool woodworking, but after I saw his talk and having, you know, have him tell me you should try this, you should try this. I actually got into it about a year ago and have absolutely been loving the um, the process of becoming more skilled with with hand tools. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other hobby that I've been spending a lot of time and, unfortunately, money on is uh, uh, combat flight simulators. So, you know, get in, the, get in the jet and I would say blow stuff up. But honestly, what I've found is that I'm spending my time doing things like learning how to do aerial refueling and fly formation, which are crazy hard. So...
0: You're telling me you were trying out for a combat flight sim club or something? Was that true?
2: Yeah, that's right. So, um, so the, the flight simulator that I'm specifically using is one called uh, Falcon BMS, which is short for Benchmark Sims, which has a very interesting history as, even as a piece of software. Uh, it has a really, really interesting site. So it was written by Microprose. Microprose abandoned it. Some other people picked it up. and it, I, I you know,
0: played that a million years ago, like 3.0, yeah, I think. It's
2: been around forever, and it kind of died off because the, you know, the people couldn't make it go of it as a business. Then people did it as a side project, and then another company came along and bought up the IP and somehow got the hobbyist to donate the IP to the company, and then it, that company died, whatever. So it's this it's this piece of software that has been worked on by people who are absolutely in love with this hobby for coming up on 20 years now, right? And so it's very, um, I mean, I don't know how you measure realism, but it's its realistic in a way that is unexpectedly amazing for a piece of commercial software, mm-hmm. right? Anyway, so if you want to learn this thing, it's really hard. And like a lot of things, the best way to learn it is from someone else, right, who is actually really good at it. Mm-hmm. And so there are these organizations of enthusiasts. Um, they organize themselves into virtual fighter wings. And you know, they have application processes and you can fail them. And I applied and I didn't fail. I was actually doing okay. But I found that, I mean, you might have figured out now that I have too many hobbies mm-hmm. between doing all the other things I was trying to do. And the homework and practice that was involved in going through this process was too much for me right now. So I said, hey, uh, you know, I'm going to have to come back when life is a little calmer and, uh, and take a run at this again.
0: Hmm. That's crazy. So did these, these fighter wings fight each other? Is that the um,
2: idea? So it it turns out that um, I think, and I think a lot of people agree, the most fun that you can have is when you fly with other people against possibly other people. That's actually fairly rare. More often it's against computer controlled threats. So you you know, you get like four or eight people together and you go and and run a mission against, you know, whatever the computer can throw up against you. But mm-hmm. there also are head to head competitions. I've always been a huge fan of multiplayer cooperative games. Mm -hmm. I just, I I, like, like, like that a lot.
0: Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to let you go.
2: Cool, man. Well, I appreciate you having me on. It was great to talk to
0: you again. Yeah. Anything else you want to plug besides your closure? Anything besides your podcast, which is awesome? I'm a listener. People should go check that out if they haven't.
2: Yes. We would, well, we, you know, love to, love to have people listen. Um, no, I don't think so. There was, I wanted to just reiterate the offer that we should pair sometime. Let's yes. not forget about that. That would yes. be super cool.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, Still on my to-do list. I'm sure cool. both of us have an entry somewhere. Yes, yes that's right. <laughs> Good. We'll, we'll put it into Atomic and not let it get excised. There and, you go. <laughs> uh,
1: we'll
2: know
0: it's there and can always come back to yep. it at any point. That's right. That's right. Awesome. Cool. Cool. Well, today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 138. Thanks for listening.